France has its wine, Germany has its beer, and Ireland and Scotland have their own special brew, whiskey. Kate Hopkins, who runs a website called Accidental Hedonist, has come up with a distinctive way to explore the land of whiskey and meet its people. They love to espouse how much whiskey means to them, both in Ireland and in Scotland. Kate has toured dozens of distilleries in search of what she calls the perfect shot. There's literally a whiskey for every season. There's a whiskey for winter, there's a whiskey for summer. The vast flavor that are available to the public, to the consumers, is larger than most people realize. We'll learn about whiskey appreciation and the role the drink played shaping the history and attitudes of people from the highlands of Scotland to the hills of Appalachia, coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Later in the hour, Scottish transplant Chris Ray returns to teach us some perplexing examples of British slang as we continue to explore two cultures divided by a common language. It's whiskey and British slang today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll find out what whiskey can teach us in just a moment as a woman known as the Accidental Hedonist takes us behind the scenes in her search for the perfect shot. And we'll explore more of the quirky language barrier that separates Americans from their British cousins, coming up on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK, and you can reach us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And when we're traveling, we want to get into the culture. And the culture is sometimes visual, and sometimes it's edible, and sometimes it's drinkable. A lot of us appreciate the beer in our travel. I've seen beer pilgrims in Belgium traveling all the way there just for the beer. Of course, we have people traveling all over the world to appreciate the wine. And another dimension of that slice of cultural appreciation in our travels is whiskey. Today I'm joined by Kate Hopkins, who's done a lot of traveling, exploring the world of whiskey, and she's written a book to share her experiences. Kate's written a book called The Accidental Hedonist Guide to the Best Whiskey in the World. Kate, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much for having me here. Wow, what an undertaking to go around the world uh, looking for the perfect shot of whiskey. Why did you do this? Well, it started with a newspaper article, of all things, about a, a gentleman in Surrey, England, who spent a fair amount of money on a single bottle of whiskey and then consumed it. Uh, The price of the whiskey was, it was a Dalmore, roughly about $70,000. And then he drank it and shared it with the bar manager and somebody else, and that was the end of the story. Well, my mindset was what would cause a man to do such a thing, to spend that amount of money, and then just to get rid of it, essentially, in less than a day. And? What I found was a world that was much larger than I anticipated. So it wasn't just money to burn, huh? It, well, I found out later, actually, that he had had a very good day on the stock market and wanted oh, okay. to, to, uh, to celebrate in a very unique way. Well, yeah, we hear about these incredibly expensive bottles of whiskey. And when you travel, you can go into different fancy shops and, and see this sort of thing. But basically, uh, you've got a big range of conceivably purchasable bottles of whiskey. What is the most expensive shot of whiskey you've ever purchased and thought was worthwhile? Being that I'm a writer, I don't have the uh, expense account that many people would like to have, uh, but I've spent uh, roughly $200 for a bottle of whiskey. So that would translate to about, what, $20 a shot maybe? And was it worth the money? It's always worth the money. In other words, you can appreciate that. Absolutely. It took a while to get to the point where you could have the, understand the nuances and, and things of that nature. But at that point, yes. And the nuances, that's the challenge for a lot of us because I have to say when I was preparing to talk to you uh, – I wish I knew more about whiskey because I think a lot of people don't know much about whiskey. And, you know, we try to learn about the wine. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. But I was in Edinburgh, and a friend of mine took me into a pub, and they weren't drinking beer. They were all drinking their favorite whiskeys, and they were evangelical about their favorite whiskey. And I just, it was a whole different world. And these people, you could tell the different um, fragrances and personalities of the whiskey, and I could actually relate to it better than the fine points defining different wines. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, one of the uh, advocates from the Scotch Whiskey Association, I asked her straight out, what are your favorite whiskeys? And she said, Kate, there's literally a whiskey for every season. There's a whiskey for winter. There's a whiskey for summer. Uh, the vast flavor that are available to the public, to the consumers, is larger than most people realize. And if you express an interest as a green tourist that doesn't know much about uh, whiskey appreciation, you'll make friends and you'll probably get a few free drinks. They love to espouse how much whiskey means to them, both in Ireland and in Scotland. I'm joined by Kate Hopkins, who's uh, just written a book called 99 Drams of Whiskey. The subtitle, The Accidental Hedonist's Quest for the Perfect Shot and the History of the Drink. 
So, Kate, well, where did you go, and how did you put this book together? I mean, it's a wealth of information, uh, and it can be a very good guide for travelers. Tell me where you went, and, and what was your process? Well, the process was such as we, I wanted to encapsulate as much of the history of whiskey as I could, from its development in Ireland uh, all the way through the Industrial Age and how it migrated over to the United States. Uh, so we started our trek in Ireland, in Dublin, and wound our way through Scotland, through the Highlands, um, then crossed the ocean back to western Pennsylvania and Canada at that point, and finishing up in the Appalachian, Kentucky region for bourbon. Now, if you're thinking about whiskey touring, people do wine touring, people do beer touring, is it basically Ireland, Scotland, and the United States and Canada? Uh, I would say it's primarily Ireland and Scotland, with a few distilleries in Canada and the United States focused on tourism. This side of the ocean really hasn't caught up to uh, the old country. The old country, yes. And maybe part of that is because the old country, I find, is so intimately connected with its soil, culturally, physically, spiritually. There's something about the terroir. I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, in addition to that, they hold on to whiskey as the drink of the rebels, the drink of the people who are against the mainstream. And and that's sort of, you, you see that both in Ireland and in Scotland, of how they use that drink to sort of oppose in their own minor way, sometimes sometimes major way, the British. The so English. it's a statement. It's, it's absolutely a statement. So there's patriotism in whiskey appreciation. I would wholeheartedly agree with that statement. There's even patriotism in the spelling, isn't there? Oh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, you can either spell it with an E-Y or a Y at the end, and even the Irish and the Scottish haven't gotten that straight. So. But, I mean, isn't one of them, if you see in Ireland, it would be spelled... With an E-Y. E-Y, and, mm -hmm. it, and Scotch would be... With just a Y. Just a Y. So I've tried to learn that, and I have a tough time keeping track of that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Kate Hopkins, who's just written a fascinating book called 99 Drams of Whiskey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we have Joseph on the line in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Joseph, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. Got a comment for Kate? Well, I just was wondering, how can we be assured of when you purchase a 21-year-old whiskey or an 18-year-old whiskey, is there some sort of verification process that they go through to authenticate that in both uh, North America and or Ireland and Scotland? Uh, yes, there is. There's some government oversight, but it's not like you have the Nassayer looking over their shoulder every time they put whiskey in or out of the cask. It's sort of a, an auditing kind of 10% of everything kind of deal. Um, generally speaking, though, I would trust that a 21-year-old is actually 21 years old because, you know, these corporations have invested a lot of money in their, in the bottles that they're putting out, and they wouldn't want to lose that reputation if they happen to be caught. Sure, changing you? Yeah, it would ruin them. Well, thank you. I hope mm -hmm. that's some comfort there, Joseph. Thanks for well, your call. Well, yes. <laughs> I love your show. Oh, thanks. Thanks a lot for your call. You bet. Kate, we talked about the connection with the soil, and you can taste it, can't you? I mean, depending on what where it came from. You taste the peat. You taste oh, the absolutely. oak. Uh, Tell me about the different colors of whiskey. Well, it's from everything from a pale straw to a deep amber color, uh, depending upon how long it's been aged in the cask versus how long you know they've kept it out of the cask. The peat itself is a fairly remarkable thing. Because uh, I love the peat. To me, that's what's cool about whiskey. It, it gives this really deep, almost medicinal for the new palate uh, taste to it that just lingers around for sort a of long smoky. Of time. You can you can almost hear the British attacking the clans. You know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent on that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So now we've got all of this connection with the soil and a connection with the patriotism and, and the pride and the history, there's also a lot of stories that go along with the whiskey. I mean, there's this whole mythology of whiskey and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and so on. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this goes from the, the era of both Scottish and Irish history where the English had fortified themselves in the lands and had taxed the drink to the point no one could make money off of it. So an illegal underground trade started, and there was a great amount of pride in being able to make lots of money and to show off how wealthy they would become. And there were some clans in Scotland who would come down off of the hills and into the marketplaces of the lowlands, just be decked with all sorts of colorful tartans and kilts just to establish how much money they've made off of uh, this underground illegal trade. Now, when you're traveling with whiskey in mind, invariably you take these tours, and every distillery, it seems like, in Ireland and Scotland, welcomes the public mm -hmm. for the tour. Mm -hmm. What is the basic 
process on the tour? Well, the process is generally the same no matter which distillery you go to. You have maybe a 10-minute video up front, and then they take you a walk around the distillery showing various areas. Um, this is where they keep the grains, or this is where this is distilled, or things along that nature. Um, some are better than others. Some will involve you in the commercial enterprises, like uh, having you watch their commercials for minutes, um, which seems like hours. Others are really intent on making sure that you have a pleasant time while you're there. Uh, the Glenfiddich Distillery uh, in Dufftown, it comes to mind that they are just very customer-focused. So what was your favorite whiskey tour of all the visits? Uh, well, I have to admit, it's, it was a private whiskey tour I had with a gentleman's at Locks Distillery in Skilbegan, Ireland. I fell in love with the place. It's about 60 miles west of Dublin, and uh, it goes back to the late 1700s. And, and this is a distillery that's seen all of the major eras of Irish history, modern history, from uh, British occupation through independence through World War II. And of all the tours, why was this really special? Well, they've made sure to highlight their history and had taken great pains to not modernized to the point where they're destroying what their past. So they're elevating their past to become part of their present tradition. So you, you saw an economic viable corporation at the same time respecting its heritage. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and this is, runs in stark contrast to some distilleries where they keep the older distillery, but if you look behind the curtains, it's modern and industrial. Right. And, so you've got this ye old front. Yeah, exactly. And they, I, I've been to a lot of tours, and they all have the same very promotional beautiful advertising videos that let you know how committed they are to family and culture and environment and quality. And in some cases, you know, it, it's honest. And in other cases, it's a little bit of embellishment on their parts. Now, most of these companies that welcome the guests, they actually lose money on that aspect of their That's their correct. Business. There's very few distillers who actually make money from their community centers. So why do they do it? It's long-term advertising. It's, so they're making friends. They are making friends. If an American comes over and buys a T-shirt with their brand on it, we'll go back to the States. That's free advertising. Do they give you the Pepsi and Coke kind of taste thing? Here's a little Irish, here's a little Scotch? What they'll do is, uh, essentially, yes, but they'll, against their biggest rivals. Oh, really? Kind they of, put yeah. them head-to-head -head right there in a blind test kind of way? Oh, not so blind. They'll tell you straight up that this is a, an Irish whiskey and this is a bourbon and Clearly, the Irish whiskey is better. My tip for any traveler when you go to the various tours is if they ask for volunteers for tasting, raise your hand really quick because you'd really get an education. You get to sit there and try all the different whiskeys. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jameson is known for that. They'll yeah. ask for volunteers right up front. Yeah. And, and, and if people are shy, this is the one, there's three of them in Ireland, right, the Jamesons? Uh, there's two Jamesons, one in Dublin, one in Cork, and, uh, and or the, Middleton, actually. Bushmills is a different Bushmills is up north. Yeah. I'm speaking with Kate Hopkins. Kate has just written a fascinating book for anybody that wants to learn more about whiskey on the road called 99 Drams of Whiskey. And we're taking your calls at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. More on whiskey in just a moment. <laughs> Take a drive. On whiskey, on whiskey, makes me feel so blue. Cause I just can't drink on whiskey without you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Kate Hopkins, who uh, has written a book called 99 Drams of Whiskey, The Accidental Hedonist's Quest for the Perfect Shot in the History of the Drink. Now, Kate, you have a very popular blog that's called The Accidental Hedonist, right? That's correct. Time Magazine called it one of the 50 coolest websites around. You're a food writer. That's right. And uh, were you, like, into whiskey before you got into this? 
I was knowledgeable of it in, in a sort of generic way. My father kept whiskey around the house all the time, so I was aware of all the brands, but I wasn't really aware of the history behind it. Did your travels make you more enthusiastic about it? Oh, absolutely. What thrilled me about this whole journey was how much I learned about the histories of Ireland, Scotland, and, and Great Britain, and how, or England, rather, and how they're all interconnected. And, so apart from just the alcohol, is there anything constructive about uh, this quest of yours? I would say it, you could probably apply what I did with whiskey with almost any topic in that if, if you follow the trail of, say, either chocolate or art or whatever, you could find... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a rack upon which to hang a better appreciation of that culture. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, I like that concept. And you get a, a wee dram of whiskey to boot. <laughs> Indeed. We have, uh, well, Alice emailed us in Cincinnati, and Alice writes, uh, what's the difference between whiskey, bourbon, and scotch? Well, they're all whiskeys at its core, but primarily the difference between bourbon and scotch is that scotch is barley, just straight out a barley grain uh, whiskey, whereas Bourbon is primarily corn-based with hits of barley and sometimes wheat, sometimes rye thrown in. So it, it's best to think of bourbon as a corn whiskey and scotch as a barley whiskey. All right. And uh, what's a dram? A dram is simply a size of, of a drink, roughly three ounces, give or take, depending upon the bartender's it's hand. It's more than a shot. Yeah, it's more than a shot, but not much more, sadly. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Now. You're, you don't look like a very snobbish person, and does this make you a snob to be a, a, a whiskey aficionado? Well, it would depend upon who you talk to. If you talk to my partner, I'm absolutely a snob. But, I, you know, I'm of the belief that getting to know any topic in detail, one, it makes you a better-rounded person. Two, it, in, it increases the enjoyment of whatever subject you happen to be approaching. Is it fair to say if you don't like whiskey, you don't know enough about it? I would say that there's room for people to not like whiskey, although my publisher would probably be upset for me saying that. I'll moment. never forget my visit to Cattenhead's whiskey, to, uh, whiskey bottlers down at the bottom of the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. You got the, we call it Malt Disney at the top of the right. thing, which is very commercial, where all the tourists go and you ride a little, you literally ride a, a barrel through a, a Disney kind of thing and then you get your sample and you've learned about the whole process. Down at the bottom, there's a guy who just loves to turn people on to great whiskey. And he told me, that he likes the whiskey that's sort of in the rough, not processed, not purified, not whatever they do to get it in the bottle. And he actually told me, he showed me all the bottles, and he said, all the guys with their names on those bottles, they don't drink it out of the bottle. They drink it out of the cask in the rough. Well, I appreciate the chill-filtered aspects. There's this aspect to whiskey that um, there's cogeners and, and other items that are deep within the chemistry of the drink itself. And some would argue that by chill filtering it, you remove those oils and cogeners in it that have more flavor. Okay. Um, a lot of whiskey producers would say that's a bunch of hooey, um, but again, they're they're invested in chill in, filtering. In selling so, their big, fast-produced bottles. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it, it's one of those things where you kind of have to sample yourself. To this guy took a little glass for me, and he just dribbled in a little water, and he said, it's like when a, you take a garden and in the spring, and when the rain hits, it just opens up all the fragrance of it. And then we saw all the little impurities and everything, and we tasted it, and he looked at me and said, whiskey can become a very good friend. You know, part of the ritual I've found is the addition of that water where you just pour in just a little bit and you watch, like you said. Yeah, you, it's a ritual to watch that. It's percolating. It's almost hypnotic sometimes to me where you, you see just all those oils just, you know. It's a chemical around. dance. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. It's water. It's whiskey. We have on the phone Kirsten in Duval, Washington. Kirsten, thanks for your call. I was curious because one of my all-time favorite whiskeys I was only ever able to get in either an Amsterdam or Heathrow airport. It was a double-matured Talisker. Um, I believe it's, it's matured in, in one cask, like an oak cask, and then mm -hmm. finished in another, like a sherry or a port. And it's absolutely wonderful. It's smooth and it tastes good, but it still has that wonderful peaty sort of flavor. And I was just wondering, is there anything that compares to that um, kind of flavor that doesn't involve, you know, having to go through the Amsterdam airport. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from my point of view, the, one of the sad things about buying uh, alcohol in the United States is the fact that there are 50 different rule sets to deal with. Mm -hmm. And depending upon which state you live in, it, it depends upon which drink you're allowed to have. Um, now, if, if the question you're having here, does anything compare to Talisker? Well, you know, that's the brilliance of the single malt industry is that there's a drink for everybody. There's a bottle of Talisker for you. There's a bottle of, of Jura for somebody else. There's a bottle of Bushmills for me. Um, there's just so much available. But if you're asking me if there's an equal to that, 
I, I'm like I said, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of uh, Bushmills 21 year old, and and just it 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 makes me weep when I drink it. Ooh, Bushmills 21 year old. Mm-hmm. Our our fallback is of course uh, Trader Joe's uh, generic whiskey because it always tastes really good, despite the fact that it's, who knows what is inside. And, and that's perfectly okay. It, it, it's that's the whole point of it is if you like it, you like it, and and just you know sit back and enjoy it. Okay, Kirsten, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Bill in Decatur, Alabama. Bill, thanks for your call. Nice to be with you today. Yeah, what are your thoughts on whiskey? Well, you know, I live down in uh, bourbon country, close to Jack Daniels and not far from Kentucky. So, uh, you know, we got some in the backyard. And having traveled to Ireland, I've had opportunity to join Jameson. But my question is, you know, I've heard, and they try to explore some, but what is the best way to, to taste it? Some people say a splash of water. Some say an ice cube. Some people say drink straight up and really get the nuances of uh, what you're drinking. What do you prefer and what do you recommend? Well, uh, my preference it depends on my mood, really, because sometimes I just order whiskey straight with water back, which is you know whiskey with a side of water, and I can add the water at my leisure. Other times, though, I do like uh, adding an ice cube or two. And what that does is as you sit there for the 20 minutes, 30 minutes as you're drinking, the ice will melt and it changes the characteristics of the drink over the course uh, of your consuming it. So it's always tasting just a little bit different than it did the previous time. Right. And I, lo- I, I love that feeling. Um, I have to say I, I disagree with people who say drinking it straight up. Um, there's just way too much alcohol involved and that numbs both the taste buds and, and your receptors in your nose and you lose the bouquet. And The water opens it up. The water absolutely opens it up. Hey, uh, Bill, you're down in Jack Daniels country. Now, Jack Daniels is unique in its appeal to the common man, right? Well, I, I just made applesauce yesterday with the apples that are coming in, and Uncle Jack goes into it every year, and I have people begging for it, so I rest my case. <laughs> That's really quite an accomplishment for a fine drink to be the champion of the common people, I think. Well, you know, you, a good thing goes a long way. So, uh, <laughs> yes, it is enjoyed in this part of the country, and, uh, you know, it's a good place to take people for nice eating because, like Miss Mary Bobo's up there, they add Jack Daniels to all of their cooking ingredients. And, you know, it's a fine afternoon and a fine tour. Oh, I've, I've eaten at Miss Mary Bobo's. That's a wonderful place. It's, it's, Where, where's that? It's in Lynchburg. It's a oh. uh, restaurant that is essentially a sit-down community dinner. A family-style restaurant. Yeah. But now Lynchburg's dry, you wrote in your book, right? Lynchburg? Yes, it is. What, yes. is that, what does that mean? They don't serve... The whole town doesn't serve any... The whole county doesn't and serve. And this is the, where Jack Daniels is made? Well, That's they, can't, they can't sell the liquor in that county uh, because they, they didn't have enough to pass a referendum. But at the distillery now, they are allowed now to sell their collector edition bourbons at the distillery. They, in fact, they just modernized and everything. So that is the only location in that county you can actually buy it. Outside of that, it's dry. So now this is interesting. Tennessee did not vote for Al Gore, and they don't let you buy their own best drink. Yes, it's well, that they would they would vote for Jack Daniels. They would vote for Jack Daniels. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so just so I understand, uh, you can go to a nice restaurant and have a good uh, Tennessee experience, but you're not going to get any Jack Daniels on the as a possibility there. They will not sell you. There's no liquor stores there. Like I say, with the exception of the the store that is in the distillery shop itself. So it's not a dry county. It's just, uh, from a commercial point of view, they don't sell it. They don't sell it. But there's plenty of wetness. Uh, Oh, there's wetness. In fact, uh, (laughs) from what I understand with the tours that I've taken family and friends on, the people who work still get their allotment. You know, they get a bottle a month if they they so choose. That must go back. That's part of the perks of working there, I guess. By the way, we're talking with Kate Hopkins, who's written a fascinating book called 99 Drams of Whiskey, The Accidental Hedonist Quest for the Perfect Shot. And, uh, Kate, you've toured the Jack Daniels distillery. How was that tour? Is it, is it worth the... It's absolutely it? worth the time to go down there. Jack Daniels is the largest whiskey producer in the world, and to see how they are able to accomplish that, it's an amazing thing to behold. Because of its scale? Its scale and uh, just how well they take care of the community in which they're located. Uh, out of all the whiskey distilleries I've been to, Jack Daniel's distillery was closest associated with the area in with which the they were located, yes. Yeah. Is that your impression, Bill? 
Yeah, you know, and one of the things, Kate, I would ask you, because I've only been to that one, and I have been looking to go on the Bourbon Trail up in Kentucky. Will you have any recommendations there? I mean, a lot of people have told me it's a fantastic, you know, to go up there tours to Wild Turkey, to Knob Creek, and all of those. Have you been on that tour? I have been on those tours, and there's there's two distilleries I really enjoy in a three actually in northern Kentucky. Uh, one I like Maker's Mark. If you can make it up to there, that's probably the crown Excellent jewel. Bourbon. Yeah, or oh, it's the wheat bourbon that, that they make. Uh, the other one is Woodford Reserve. Hmm. Woodruff. Woodford Reserve. Yeah. Okay. It's in uh, Versailles, Kentucky. Uh-huh. Uh And the final one is Buffalo Trace, which is just outside of Frankfurt, I believe. You know, when we think about visiting distillers, we also think about uh, prohibition and temperance and moonshine and all that. Is there actually prohibition tourism? Are there places to visit that give you an insight into that era? Not as much anymore. Uh, the only company that I'm aware of, the only place that I'm aware of that's taking advantage of that is Canadian Club uh, in Windsor, Canada, who's playing up their Al Capone references. Uh, Al Capone would head over to Windsor all the time to get his whiskey and, you know, transported to Chicago or other areas in the Midwest. But now the uh, NASCAR goes all the way back to, it has a prohibition kind of uh, connection, doesn't it? That's very true. Uh, NASCAR actually started as a um, a way for people, for, well, men, really, to uh, test the cars that they used for smuggling up against one another. And that later evolved into uh, racing and then NASCAR racing. So you needed a faster car to to outrun the the police when you were uh, distilling whiskey illegally. That's correct. Having grown up in the South, I will tell you from personal experience as a kid watching those moonshiners, because of their driving skills on the roads of South Carolina and especially North Carolina, where a lot of those NASCAR drivers came from, that's how they got to those dirt tracks and that's how they got to the big tracks of today. You go back and look at some of the, like, Fireball Robbers, Junior Johnson, all of those. <laughs> so there's a direct uh, those connection. Those were the moonshiners. That's correct. That's absolutely right. So next time you watch a NASCAR race, think moonshine, huh? Absolutely. Whoa. Bill, thanks for your call and your insights. Pleasure, pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You're most informative, and I look forward to I want to get a copy of your book. Uh, it's 99 grams of whiskey. I'm sure learning a lot. Um, thanks, Bill. I'm, Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kate Hopkins, who's written a new book called 99 Drams of Whiskey. She joins us today to share what she learned on her quest. Kate, is there actually still moonshine in the United States being produced and sold? Or what, what would that mean? Moonshine is essentially any whiskey that's made without government regulation or government oversight. Oh, for and tax-free. For then. tax-free. Um, it's, it, it's black market whiskey, essentially. And does that happen? Oh, Yes. For, for business, not just for personal consumption? I would say that, there, yes, there's uh, black market businesses and of people making whiskey. can they compete, according to some people's taste, with the commercial brands as far as quality goes? Well, generally speaking, these are drinks that are unaged. That's why they get the name White Lightning. They're right out of the still. So they're just hard. They're liquor. just hard. So you don't – an aficionado would, would never sort of uh, – Go for something like that, probably. Uh, an aficionado would probably take a sip or two now and then. And then just shake their heads and go, I'm, thank goodness for Ireland or something. Uh, yes, yes. But are, are there the equivalent of micro brews, micro distilleries that are commercially viable that can uh, give somebody an alternative to Jack Daniels? Uh, there are now. Uh, in the past five or ten years, uh, we've seen distilleries popping up all across the, uh, the United States as laws mm-hmm. change and evolve. Uh, Colorado has a really nice one, Colorado distillery, that makes a really nice barley-type whiskey. Tracy's on the phone in Salem, Massachusetts. Tracy, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, so I actually have a couple of questions, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I was wondering, what's the best way to learn how to drink whiskey? If I'm uh, not used to it, if I'm just starting out, I mean, is there a way to sort of ease into it? <laughs> um, and my second question actually is, um, what do you think of Welsh whiskey? I, I tried some last year, and it was it was just wonderful. So... Well, let me address your first question. And I, I would say appreciate whiskey instead of drink whiskey. Yeah, right. appreciate. You know, because I, I think I was just thinking, are we promoting people like just drinking alcohol? I think this is a, an appreciation thing. Uh, I want to clarify Absolutely. that. Yeah. I, I would say probably the best way to learn how to appreciate whiskey is to, to not be afraid of water. When you're drinking some of the lower end brands, and I'm talking about the brands that are roughly $30 a bottle, Give a one-to-one water-to-whiskey ratio. You want to get rid of the alcohol bite. And so and that once you get rid of the alcohol bite by diluting it with water, the mm-hmm. flavors of the grain will start coming through. 
once you're able to do that, you know, remove the water as you see fit further on down the line until it's at the point where you find it pleasant but not overwhelming. The second way is just indulge in a $100 bottle of whiskey. And <laughs> and there's a reason for this. These are the whiskeys that have been aged for 18 years or so, and they've had time to mellow in the cask. So the, so the sugars come out of the woods, and it smooths the harshness of the alcohol. So mm-hmm. it makes it easier to, to consume for people who are new to the drink. And those are the two ways. Um, now, about, about Welsh whiskey, I found it, I, I enjoyed it a great deal. It was a great big surprise to me. I found it lighter uh, than I anticipated. Why I really like the Welsh whiskey is the fact that I think all Gaelic countries should find ways to uh, claim title to uh, the inventors of whiskeys. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's not a, the private bragging rights of Scotland or Ireland. Uh, absolutely. All right. Tracy, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. I like that idea of getting a $100 bottle. I think it'd be a good idea to invite a bunch of friends over who don't really appreciate whiskey and say, we're all going to get an opportunity now to try some fine whiskey and try to appreciate it. For me, it's, it's coming from the food world. You know, there's this idea of you don't know what you're tasting until you get the taste of what it's supposed to taste right, like. Right. And that $100 bottle of whiskey is sort of along the same lines. Kate, in your travels, you based a, a whole trip around appreciating whiskey. Mm-hmm. What do you bring home from that? I bring home two things. Uh, one, I'm a little sad, really, in how much we Americans sometimes just dismiss our past. Whiskey played a very strong role in, in the birth of this nation from the early 1800s, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion of the 1790s, through the use of the drink as, as a form of currency as we expanded to the West. And when Prohibition came, it sort of erased all all of that. And it shut down a fair amount of industries and put many people out of work. And we forgot, we've culturally forgot that aspect of who we are. And I find that really disappointing. The second thing I take from it is the fact that as I look at the people in Ireland and Scotland who have claimed this past, and you don't have to be a drinker to understand its significance, it gives me hope that we as Americans will apply that same attitude to either whiskey and beer and cheese and all these other food items that we have, and these traditions that we hold on to that have been here for years that we just take for granted. So it's not really a matter of consuming more. It's a matter of appreciating and how a fine slice of your culture has some deep roots. Mm-hmm. I think Ireland and Scotland do it right, and maybe the United States could learn a little by looking east. I agree. Kate Hopkins, author of 99 Drums of Whiskey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. While whiskey is now served all around the world, it still echoes that Celtic character and their clashes with the British. Some of that quarreling might be over the peculiar words Brits use that the rest of us just can't comprehend. We're getting deep into Cockney slang next on Travel with Rick Steves. Chris Ray's a Scot who now lives in Seattle and has a lighthearted website and a book called The Septic's Companion. It's designed to help Americans understand British slang, including the insults you're not likely to catch. Chris is here to take your calls at 877-333-RICK as we get an earful of British wordplay on Travel with Rick Steves. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Septic's Companion. Got a picture of a septic tank on the on the cover of this book. How does that mean a, a companion for American travelers? The septic's companion. Yes, my my wife said this was a, a bad idea for the book title. Um, I ought to explain a little uh, about uh, something called Cockney rhyming slang in order to describe the title. So uh, a Cockney. Okay, so is, for, this is Cockney. So that's the working class downriver from London. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So it, they've got their own l- rhyming slang. That's true, okay. and it's much like. Uh, in the same way as lots of other kind of subcultures have a slang that they use, this is this is the the London slang, Cockney rhyming slang. And so, in Cockney rhyming slang, you will use a two-word couplet to refer to another word, which is the word you're after. And so, I would use, uh, let's say, uh, the phrase "butcher's hook" to mean the word "look." 
So if I'm thinking of look, I think of, if I'm Cockney, I think of a word that rhymes with look that has a word before it. Hook, butcher's hook. Cockney would know I'm talking about look. That's true, although it does have to be the particular phrase butcher's hook. You couldn't think of some other phrase. So that uh, somebody just said that's the, that's yep, the yep, definition, yep. butcher's Perhaps hook. It's, it's, All around England, if you say, let's go take a butcher's hook, people will know you're saying, let's go take a look. Well, actually, you can actually use just the first word of that couplet. And in a lot of cases, that is what you use in order to refer to it. So okay. butcher, people actually wouldn't really understand butcher's hook if, if you used it to mean look. They would understand butcher's. So it dissolves into the common exactly. language. Now, how does that relate to the title of your book, The Septic's Companion? Well, so septic, the two-word couplet septic tank, um, is used uh, in Cockney rhyming slang to refer to the word yank, which to a Brit is anyone from America. So would you say anybody in Britain, if they said septic's companion, would realize that means the yank's companion? Oh, yeah, certainly. And, and this slang has actually gone outside of the UK. So, for example, in Australia... Um, they will use the term septic to refer to Americans, and they further abbreviated it to SEPO. Americans are called septics. Okay, well, this is one reason to get this book, I guess. Now, uh, I'm always impressed when I travel around Britain how much fun it is. This is basically a, a glossary of all the words that can cause a language barrier between Americans and Brits. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jim's on the phone in Bay City, Michigan. Jim, thanks for your call. Hey, thanks uh, for talking to me, Rick. Um we're traveling, I'm traveling with my family, uh, we're going to London, and I was wondering if there was any expressions that we might use here in the States that we may want to refrain from over there. Ooh, interesting. Anything that may be offensive and we wouldn't know it. Uh, obviously, we have to be a little bit careful here. There are many of them. Well, let's, um, let's have some. Possibly the one that you're going to come across the worst is the word fanny. Uh, and oh, is that right? Obviously, in, in the US, well, we, we all know what a fanny is, it's your posterior, but, but in British English, and it, it never refers to that, and in British English, how can I describe this carefully, uh, only, only a lady would have one. It's a vagina. Yes. Oh, I see. You can say vagina on the radio, a, and, uh, but in Britain, a fanny, if you say, because my dad always said, I'm going to spank your fanny, that would not be a nice thing to say in England. <laughs> that would be perhaps an inappropriate thing to say in England, yes. What's another example? Um, napkin, isn't that a problem? Uh, napkin, yes, true. Napkin means tampon. Yes, and and uh, so in a restaurant, if you ask for a napkin, you're not going to get a serviette. Well, I think like want. again, in a restaurant, that one in a restaurant, they'll they'll be fine with that. Okay. So certainly the the fanny one, people will be confused by. And another one is the um, well, it's just a name, but the name in the U.S. Randy does not. It has a real meaning in the U.K., which is which is best equated to kind of the American English. Horny, so uh, you know the the. Uh, so if your name is Randy and yeah. you and you meet a woman at customs in London at the Heathrow Airport and you say, "Hi, I'm Randy." Yes, that's probably not oh. a good thing to say. If, if your name is Randy, it's a good idea to invent another name while traveling the UK. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Randolph. Well, suddenly, Randy is Randolph. <laughs> there you go, Jim. I appreciate it. So watch out for uh, Fanny and Randy. <laughs> okay. And besides, fact, a fanny pack. A lot of Americans have a fanny pack. Yeah, they they don't call them that in the UK. What do you call them in the UK? They call them bum bags. Bum bags. Uh, now, of course, in bum in the UK mean, means your posterior. It doesn't yeah. mean. Uh, I'll never forget being on a cruise ship in the Caribbean, and we had an exercise class, and we had a British uh, exercise leader. And she said, "I remember we're laying on the floor. And she goes, kick your bum, kick your bum,' <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a way to stretch. And I got used to the 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 bum. All right, Jim, we're learning lots here. Thanks, guys. Happy travels. Thank you. And Barbara's on the phone in Westcliff, Colorado. Barbara, thanks for your call. Uh, hi, Rick. How are you? Doing well. We're having fun with the language barrier in Britain here. Do you got a comment or a question? Yes, exactly. Uh, whenever I'm traveling and I run into someone that speaks with a you know good British or Australian or uh, New Zealand accent, and I don't understand them, um, I'll say, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. I'm an American. <laughs> And it always gets a good laugh and then a nod, and then it just breaks the ice and opens up the conversation for much more, you know, good exchange. It's interesting that, uh, you know, you're uh, belittling yourself here, but in actual fact, in a lot of senses, the English that they speak in America is more similar to classic old English than some of the English they speak in the UK. Huh. So an example of that would be uh, the fact that you spell color C-O-L-O-R, and we spell color C-O-L-O-U-R. Um, C-O-L-O-R is actually the same as, as the Old English. We, we had some sort of, you know, variations over time. And you guys, because you're, you know, a bigger country, it takes longer for the language to evolve. You ended up with, with the old spelling and we got a new one. 
Barbara, I think that's a very good idea to say you speak American when you go to England. I think that's a fun excuse to have some fun with local people. Yeah, exactly. It, it really just opens things up and, and lets them realize that, yes, they're speaking a little bit differently, and they may not understand some of the things that I say, too. All right. Well, happy travels. Thank you. Thanks. Walter's on the phone in San Francisco. Hi, Walter. Thanks for your call. I actually had the opportunity to move and live in London for about four or five years in the early 80s. And I remember one of my friends gave me a book by George Mikesh, How to Be an Alien. And I wonder if you've ever heard of that book, because it's, it's quite a humorous thing, sort of the differences between the language and as a foreigner, how one tries to fit in. Interesting. No, it sounds interesting. I haven't heard of it, actually. And what did you learn from it, Walter? The one thing I probably learned most from it, well, at that and also working there, is that as an f- American or as a foreigner, to be very careful, because the English can use language as an offensive weapon. And to, um, to really be kind of careful. The English can use language as an offensive weapon. That's interesting. What's your take on that, Chris? Um, you know, there is a biting kind of wit with the English. They can put you in your place even without you knowing it. And everybody else on the bus goes, wow, that's, that was quite an insult. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of kind of wordplay involved in, in chit-chat in the UK. My wife is Greek, and, and Greek is a very emotive language. People always sound like they're having an argument in Greek. It, right. You know, When we uh, first got together, my wife and I, I thought that she was having an argument with the family, and the, the huh. conversation would end up in tears, and I was huh. sure something terrible would happen, and they were just talking about the weather. Um, huh. And I think like English to American is, is reasonably similar to that. There's a lot more kind of wordplay and a lot more kind of aggressive kind of banter than there is in the U.S. People in the U.S. are quite careful, certainly up here in the, uh, in the Northwest, are quite careful careful about how they appear to other people. And uh, it's, it's less of that in the UK, I think. All right, Walter. Well, good luck with your, uh, with your communicating and your travels. Well, I'll keep working on it. Thank you. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Ray. Chris has written a fun little book called The Septic's Companion, obviously, The Yankee's Companion. Uh, Chris's website is septicscompanion.com. Yeah, the website's kind of an ongoing thing. The book is sort of, in a sense, like a spin-off of the website. I've been running the website for 12 years, and uh, the book is like an imprint of the website. Chris, I want to go back to my word list here. Um, now, we have, if you're playing football and, and you, you want to protect the area between your legs, you wear a cup. This is what we would call American football. Right. Yeah. Well, even in, even in English football, I, I think it'd be nice to have a cup. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, we would call that a box. You wear a box, mm. not a cup. No. Huh. You drink out of a cup. We drink out of a cup. You could drink out of a box if you like, I suppose. I'd rather not drink out of a box in England. <laughs> we have we all have a lot of uh, garage sales. You guys have smaller houses, so you limit it to the uh, back of your car, right? Ah, uh, yes, car boot sales. They're they're. I, th- I think they're an institution reasonably similar to garage sales, although possibly there's a little bit more of a, a kind of low-class feel to car boot sales. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. But, I mean, it's an interesting thing. Every, every society has to have a place where you get rid of your junk and try to turn it into some hard cash. So yep. you have it in a, what do you call it again? Car boot. Car boot. Oh, yes, of course. Sorry, I, I, I forgot. I've been here for a while now, but I forgot. The, the boot is, of course, the trunk of the car. Well, of course, yeah. The of boot. course. Well, so I think, I think trunk, it came from... You put a trunk in the boot. Yes, I think boot came from boot locker when when the uh, when the trunk of your car was very small and all you put in it was your boots, and so is that right? Yeah. Huh. Now I offend my bus drivers when I'm a tour guide in England by calling them bus drivers, because they like to be a coach driver. Ah, interesting. See, coach now, is ah. a higher class. A bus is, you, you know, a bus runs you around the city, I guess, but a coach will is what tourists take around the countryside. Yeah, that's true. A, a bus would be on a scheduled route and a coach would be would be something that you chartered. Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, eating and drinking. Of course, uh, you got this yellow stuff on all the desserts. Custard? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, a natural thing to put in a dessert. <laughs> Anything. You just dribble some yellow st- sauce on it and it's uh, sweeter, right? <laughs> yeah, I will say, you know, the Brits are good at a lot of things, but food isn't really one of them. So custard is it. It's custard yep, is it's your, custard. your generic sweet topping. Yep, yep. All right. And if you want to have a drink with that, you might have a cuppa. Uh, you might have a cuppa, which is, a, of course, a cup of tea. Not a cup of coffee? And um, when you say a cuppa, you refer to a tea, huh? Yeah, I think when you offer someone a cuppa, they could say, I'd like coffee, and that would be fine. But by default, it would be it would be kind of tea, you know. Now, I've got a friend who uh, ran a museum in London, the Tea and Coffee Museum. And uh, he was so passionate about the death of good tea when they brought in tea bags. And the tea bag came along with the commercial television. And people needed to make a cuppa during a commercial break. So they had a tea bag that could actually brew tea as quick as a commercial. With the advent of commercial television, we got these bloody tea bags. And he said that was the last good cup of tea. <laughs> Unless you're going to go without the tea bag. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Ray, who writes a book called The Septic's Companion. And I just have so much fun with this The uh, because I thought I spoke English. And you go over there and, and uh, somebody might point on the ground and, and, and say, uh, there's a dog end. What's yes. a dog end? It's not what you'd think. No. Um, it's the uh, the end of a cigarette. So we like say a, it's a butt. A cigarette, a cigarette butt. butt. So they called it a dog end. Yeah. And what's a dog's breakfast? Um, a dog's breakfast is something that you've made a bit of a mess of. Like you, you might regard, uh, you know, something that you've written poorly or something that you produce badly as being a dog's breakfast. So if you go to England without a good itinerary, your vacation might be a dog's breakfast. Exactly, perfect usage. Or you could say dog's dinner as well. A dog's dinner. Yep. Dog's dinner or dog's breakfast. Yeah, I think to dogs it's all the same kind of thing. All right. And if your trip's in a state of disarray, if it's just one dog's breakfast, it's easier to get swindled and somebody might diddle you. Uh, they might diddle you, yes. That's, that's and I don't want to be diddled when I'm away from home. Exactly. That's just kind of like a, a that's like a kind of friendly swindle. You've been diddling me. Yeah, exactly. Stop you, diddling me. You'd you're be more of... likely to be diddled out of like a pound or two than 10,000 pounds. Okay. Now, when we're talking about language, of course, English is the Queen's language, the Queen's English. And you've got the Gaelic languages, the old Celtic languages. Yep. Historically, people spoke Scottish, Irish, and Welsh. What's the status of those three languages these days? The, the honest answer about Irish is I'm not very sure. Um, Scottish Gaelic is really kind of a dead language. I think there's something like 10,000 Gaelic speakers in Scotland. Um, and really, that's people who speak Gaelic at well, all. It's like a parent deciding to raise their kids speaking um, Esperanto or something. I mean, like, what good is it? Yeah, I think you might find Esperanto is more popular, actually. <laughs> and, and no, so this is speaking Gaelic as a second language. There's okay, so very, there's, nobody, very few people. there's nobody whose first language is Scottish. I, I mean, there is, but you could you could probably count them on your hand. So that's sort of a cultural oddity. But on the other hand, in Wales, there's people who do speak Welsh as their first language quite quite routinely. Yeah. Wales is very much a bilingual country. And uh, the further you get into the country in Wales, the more likely you are wandering around Wales to hear people talking Welsh on street corners and this kind of stuff. Now, I hear there's a big movement in Scotland afoot to uh, make the signs bilingual, one in Scottish and one in English. What's with that? Yeah, Gaelic for the Scots is a, is a bit of a hot button in that the, the Scots are a bit of a sort of rowdy nation. They don't like being, you know, at, at the end of the day, England is the greater part of the United Kingdom and the Scots feel they're under the English a bit. And the language is a bit of a, it's an emotive thing more than actually a practical thing. And so there's a lot of Gaelic television programs in Scotland, for example. Um, but really, you know, they're pandering to a very small number of Gaelic speakers. They actually have Gaelic media huh, in Scotland. Yep. Now, when you guys saw the movie Braveheart, that's freedom, right? Does that kind of make Scottish people feel really great? Um, I think it makes us feel special about Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. <laughs> that must resonate with Scottish people because you are subjugated. Yeah, true. I, by the English. Yeah, I think some of the some of the anti-English feeling in Scotland, and, and there's a lot of genuine anti-English feeling in Scotland, but in, in the UK as a whole, there's a lot of kind of playful rivalry between the nations. So people will pick on, you know, English people at work in a sort of jokey fashion. The Scots uh, have a word for English people, Sassanax, which basically, you know, it, it's, it's their derogative term for the English. And that, Sassanax? Yeah. What does that mean? I actually don't know what it means. It's Gaelic, though. You just but, call them a Sassanax, huh? Yeah. Now, I've, I've heard that if somebody is on a, a British sports team or something, and they happen to be Scottish, if they screw up, oh, they're Scottish. And if they're a champion, ah, they're British. <laughs> Yes, yes, uh, sadly that's true. There's no successful Scottish sports team really exists apart from curling. Actually, that's that's another interesting thing about the Britain versus the countries through regions that encompass Britain is that, that sport-wise, uh, Scotland, England and Wales often get their own teams for things and in kind of politics and this kind of thing, it's, it's the UK. So, so as I say, it's, it's easy to become confused by them. I, I do feel sorry for So England will give them. you a little independence when it comes to sports. Yeah, a bit. But not when it comes to politics. Although you have your parliament now in Scotland for the first time since 1707. The this Scottish have their own parliament. What's with that? Well, of course, the, the ex-Prime Minister, Tony Blair, uh, was uh, educated in Scotland. So I think he's a little affinity for Scotland. And and there was a feeling that, that some of the Scottish nationalist problems that were occurring could actually be alleviated by giving the Scots some control over stuff. So a little bit of bonsai democracy. Let it, it looks good in the window and cut it back if necessary. Well, I mean, they do have some control. It's, it's reasonably similar to how the state governments work versus the federal. So they, they can control taxes right. within a certain leverage and they have some control over education and this kind of stuff. So there's, it's not, a, there's a strong spirit in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, no, that's certainly and, true. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. I've, I've been uh, studying English with Chris Ray. Chris writes a book called The Septic's Companion. His website is septicscompanion.com. 
it's certainly true that having moved to the US myself, I noticed that a lot of a lot of Americans when they go to Britain are, are truly uh, gobsmacked at the at the language barrier they hit. Gobsmacked. Uh, yeah, I mean, gob uh, is a word for mouth. Uh, smack obviously means smack. So you're oh, kind of, it's one of know, those. I could have had a V eight moments when you get over there. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, you know, I think we've we've contributed to sussing it out here. I like that. Sussed it out. Figuring it out with Chris Ray, the Septic's companion. Chris, you know, coming up to this interview, I, I could say I was uh, having kittens, wondering how it was going to be. Not having true. kittens, isn't that fun? What does that mean? Yeah, it just means you're very nervous about something. Uh, I don't know whether having kittens makes cats very nervous, but uh, but certainly that, that's what it means. We but also say um, if, you're, if you're like uncer- uncertain about something, you could say like a cracking laugh or a good crack is another one. Good, good crack. But this has been uh, great fun. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. Cheerio. Cheers. Ta. Thank you. Because I was afraid to speak when I was just a lad. My father gave me down a tweet and told me I was bad. But then one day I learned a word to say, we ain't the nose. The biggest word you ever heard, and this is how it goes. Oh, soup and the crack and this is just the other Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. You can say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Super Gallifreyanistic gets me on the doses. You can describe your travel experiences with us in the form of an original haiku. Submission details are in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Here's an example of what our listeners are writing. Ira Warrior of Seattle sends us this haiku about a winter road trip to Colorado. Long road Wyoming. Strong wind and snow buffet us. We take a shortcut. Nina Vanderwater of Nashville, Tennessee, wrote us a poem about her state. Knoxville to Memphis, Smokies, country music to Delta Blues, Tennessee. And Kevin Gleason from Hollywood, Florida, put his impression of a summer adventure into a haiku. Rafting on river, be ready to bump and bruise, rather be on cruise. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We have help from Sarah McCormick, Gretchen Strauch, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Send us your original haiku about your travels, or even a short essay that makes us want to visit your hometown. Details are in the 15 Seconds of Fame link in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.